welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and we hope that you're having a wonderful start to 2021. One of the goals of G3 is to encourage you in the faith, and so you can make use of the resources at g3men.org. I want to encourage you to pay attention to the resources, the articles that are being released. You can also find an article that I've written recently uh, talking about reading through the Bible in 2021. I've released some uh, and published some resources for you there in that article, and of course, some links to some opportunities to connect with me personally as I'm reading through the Bible in this year. Would love to have you join me as we're going to be reading through uh, each of the chapters of the Bible in this calendar year. And of course, we're going to be seeking to encourage one another along the journey. Would love to have you join uh, with me in that process. But I am really excited about today's podcast as we have the subject of Charles Spurgeon and his wife, Susie, uh, have, again, just thinking about Spurgeon's ministry, he's greatly impacted me through the years, a towering giant, a relentless preacher, a zealous evangelist, I mean, a faithful pastor, but also an unflinching soldier in his in his battle of the downgrade controversy. And yet, as I think about how his ministry has impacted me personally, one of the reasons that his ministry has impacted me is because of his wife and her ministry, and her ministry in their home, her ministry to him personally and to their children, and of course, her book ministry, which we'll talk about as well. We have the privilege today to have a guest with us who is uh, an individual that I consider to be a friend in the faith. He has been a source of encouragement to me personally through the years, but we have the privilege to have the author of Susie with us. He is the founding pastor of Grace Community Church of Dawsonville, Georgia. Dr. Ray Rhodes is the president of Nourished in the Word Ministries. He is the author of Susie, the Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, the wife of Charles Spurgeon. But he is also the author of a new book, which we're going to talk about as well, Yours Till Heaven, The Untold Love Story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. And so it is a privilege to welcome my friend Ray Rhodes to the G3 podcast. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be here, and thank you for your ministry at your church and with G3. Absolutely, brother. It's a privilege to talk with you today as we think about Spurgeon, what a towering figure of church history. Spurgeon is the beloved English Baptist pastor that served in London for many years. He is loved by many, of course, quoted by people on all sides of the theological fence, a respected leader and preacher, but he was also a pastor. He was a father. He was a disciple maker. He was, he was an evangelist, but he was also a husband. And so we're going to be talking about that very relationship between he and his wife, Susie. But let's think a, a little bit about Spurgeon. Here's a man who preached 600 times before he was 20. His sermons sold approximately 25,000 copies per week and were translated into 20 languages. He was uh, just an enormous figure of church history. He read some six books each week to prepare for his own preaching ministry throughout the week. They say he read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress more than a hundred times in his life. Um, he saw enormous growth in his church ministry. Some 14,000 plus people added 
to his local church during his ministry. He founded a pastor's college. He trained approximately 900 men for the ministry. He founded an orphanage. He produced more than 140 books. He edited a magazine. He responded to 500 letters a week. Now, when you think about this resume, uh, it's enormous when you think about all of these accomplishments. But this was before the era of word processing and the, the modern technology that we use today, 500 written letters a week often preaching more than 10 times each week throughout uh, that region, of course, including his own responsibilities there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, He fought and labored earnestly uh, regarding the Baptist uh, controversy of the day, the downgrade controversy. Um, He was often uh, critiqued uh, in the newspaper there. He was critiqued by people in in the city of London. But yet on his 50th birthday, they listed some 66 institutions that he had founded. And he worked long hours, some 18 hours per day. And yet he died at 57. So Ray, when we think about all of these accomplishments and we think about all that Spurgeon did in in a short period of time, undoubtedly that list would, would really fill multiple ministry careers. But often what happens when you think about the life and the ministry of Charles Spurgeon, there's a woman who is often in the shadows, who's often overlooked in these conversations. So tell us a little bit about your passion in coming to not only study and research the life of Susie and then the relationship that she had with her husband, but what prompted you to give yourself to writing these books and to encourage people in the local church? Yeah, thank you, Josh. Uh, great, great question. Uh, like many pastors, I've been interested in Spurgeon for a large chunk of my ministry, uh, at least since the early 90s. I read probably my first full biography of Spurgeon then, which was Lewis Drummond's uh, volume that I came across. Uh, since then, read a lot more and uh, became more acquainted with Spurgeon's own writings. But I went back to school a little late in life. I uh, worked on my D-men at Southern Seminary and uh, chose the thesis option for that. And I had to choose a topic. And I started thinking, has anyone written about Spurgeon's marriage? And uh, of course, that was too large for a thesis topic. I had to narrow it down to the role of Bible intake and prayer in the marriage of Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. Well, as I, as I began peeling back layers of their story, I, I found out a couple of things. One, no one's really spent, uh, or there's, there's really been little time spent on Susanna Spurgeon at all. Only one other biography, and it was done in 1903, the year of her death, uh, by Charles Ray. It's very helpful, a small biography, but that's about it. And then when you read Spurgeon biographies, she uh, it's almost as if she did not exist until she married him. Uh, and typically, a Spurgeon biography will say, you know, Charles Spurgeon married Susanna Thompson on January the 8th, 1856. Uh, Susanna Thompson, daughter of R.B. Thompson, doesn't even mention her mother or anything about her, really. Uh, so uh, I was fascinated by that. But the more I dug and the more I learned, uh, I found there's really a it was really a fascinating woman behind the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. And I intended uh, after uh, seminary to write a, a uh, book on their marriage. 
And yet, as I talk with various people in the publishing industry, they say, well, hey, there's there's nothing on Susanna Spurgeon. Why don't you do a biography of her? And I was already pretty excited about this uh, this lady who married Charles Spurgeon and found out she was not just sort of floating around in the background, uh, kicking back while Spurgeon worked hard. She herself was heavily invested in ministry and and then discovered her own writings. How she she wrote five standalone books, uh, helped uh, put together one of Spurgeon's earliest books, smooth smooth stones taken from ancient brooks, which was uh, quaint sayings and from Thomas Brooks the Puritan. And little do no one knows her name's not on the book uh, then, nor ne- nor is it now in the reprints that uh, she's the one that really pulled most of those quotes together that carries Spurgeon's name. So as as we'll find out, she uh, supported his ministry in numerous ways. She was an author. She gave away uh, thousands and thousands of books, uh, planted a church in her widow years. So <laughs> there's a lot to Susanna's, sto- Susanna's story. And uh, now, of course, having the opportunity to actually tell the story of their marriage in the new book that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Very good. So let's talk a little bit about how they met. So take us back to the very beginning days when uh, Charles Spurgeon and Susanna Spurgeon came together for the first time when they met. And tell us a little bit about what you found out. Yeah. Charles was a country preacher up in Water Beach, uh, north of London, about an hour north of London. And uh, he's 19 years old. Uh, Susie is two and a half years older. She's down in London. Her entire life has been spent in London and uh, sometime in Paris. So she's a city girl. She's refined. She is uh, has, has means to travel uh, and to have cultural experiences. While Spurgeon is laboring up in Puritan country, uh, north of Cambridge, of course, born in a small town, uh, spent several years with his grandfather in his small village of Stanbourne, where he really cut his teeth on the Puritans and John Bunyan and others. But uh, so Spurgeon's 19. Susie's almost 22 years old when he gets down to London on December the 18th, 1853, simply to preach a sermon as a guest preacher at the New Park Street Chapel. They have been without a pastor for some time. Church had declined dramatically. And Susie Thompson and her parents attended that church, but their attendance had also fallen off with the uh, loss of their pastor and and a seemingly hopeless situation. The finances were in uh, And this had been probably the most prominent Baptist church in England at one time. Uh, men like John Gill and John Rippon and Benjamin Keach, these are some of the names of folks that pastored there. So Word had gotten out that Spurgeon, this country preacher at a church that started with about 40 people when he got there, had several hundred uh, now, uh, and that he was quite the preacher. So he was invited to fill the London pulpit. Susie Thompson was not there that Sunday morning. Uh, She was urged to attend that Sunday evening, and she did reluctantly. Uh, And when she heard him and saw him, uh, she was not impressed at all. Uh, by his mannerisms, by his poor haircut, the, the clothes that he wore, his, everything about him just offended her sensibilities, which is an amazing thing in itself because in less than a year, she's engaged to this guy. So <laughs> the uh, the providence of God. So their first meeting, uh, they may have met that night, at least in passing. She wasn't sure about that. 
But the family that brought Spurgeon to London for that trial sermon and then was instrumental in his uh, early ministry there, the Thomas Olney family, family, as uh, many pastors can attest, when they go to a church, there's usually a family that sort of brings them under their wings and makes sure they're, they're fed and they're cared for. And this was that sort of family. But they were also related to Susie. And so Spurgeon would be at their home and Susanna would be at their home and they got to know each other in those months between December the 18th and April, late April, when Spurgeon is formally installed as the pastor of that church. So that's how they're becoming acquainted. Very good. Really interesting. As we think about their their life together and, of course, uh, all of the conversations, the, the, the partnership and ministry as they certainly enjoyed. As you've gone back and read and researched and labored in your time, uh, is there anything that really just surprised you, maybe a discovery that you made during your study of Spurgeon and Susie? Uh, well, there's, <laughs> there are many. Uh, you know, one of the things early on, you know, they, they're acquainted in April. Of course, uh, Susie is really not very spiritually minded at that time. Well, she is spiritually minded, but she, her heart is cold and she considers herself backslidden. Uh, Spurgeon gets word of that. And he sends her a copy of the Pilgrim's Progress and uh, she begins confiding in him at that point. Uh, this is probably sometime in April 1854, uh, which in, what's interesting to me is that though she'd only been converted maybe a year and a half and she had fallen into this backslidden sort of situation, uh, once she got the Pilgrim's Progress, once she came under Spurgeon's ministry, her growth was was quick, was rapid. Uh, her the depth of her understanding of the gospel and of the scripture and her commitment to those things happened in short order and continued the rest of her life. So that's surprising, uh, which tells me uh, that probably all of her life she'd been exposed to the Bible. She'd been reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress, no doubt the. The Book of Common Prayer would have been a staple item. So she was exposed to, to preaching and teaching and good books. All of this, I kind of think of as kindling, that when the Holy Spirit uh, used the word and used the preacher of the, uh, the preaching of the word, it just uh, sort of caught fire and it began to burn like wildfire. So that was surprising uh, to see the, the, how rapid she grew spiritually. It was surprising to learn that there, once they were engaged, uh, some a few months later, their engagement's in trouble because Spurgeon simply forgets about her. He uh, he takes her to an event where he's preaching. Thousands are there. He walks in the door. He is singularly focused on preaching, and he just forgets about Susie. Uh, she's offended. Her feelings are hurt, uh, and she runs home. She's hurt. She lives only about a mile from this venue. <laughs> and uh, crying to her mom. And then after Spurgeon finishes his sermon, he realizes what he's done, and he runs to the mom's home as well. And uh, thankfully, the mom is wise enough to recognize that Spurgeon is this unique character. He's not the, uh, the, the typical preacher of the day, or, of any, or you know, he's a one-in-a-lifetime kind of, once-in-a-lifetime kind of preacher. And so she, she brings them together, and, uh, and, and Susie makes a commitment that really, it really affects the rest of their lives together. She determines after that evening that she will never do anything to hinder his ministry. And she, she makes that commitment sincerely, not 
just I'm just going to do the grit my teeth and and bear it. I'm going to give him up uh, to the ministry. And in that day and time, you know, the pastors like Spurgeon and many of his heroes, they viewed the ministry as their public calling as first and foremost, uh, transcending, transcending everything else, including their family. Now, in Spurgeon's case, he worked very hard to, to cultivate a sweet and holy and beautiful marriage and, and, and their, their children. That's not always the case. His, his hero, George Whitfield, not not as much so. Uh, Whitfield loved his wife, but it was more whenever I can get around to uh, seeing you or talking to you, where Spurgeon was very romantic and thoughtful in his approach to Susie. So she gave him up that she was lonely at times. It wasn't easy for her, but she saw it as a commitment to Christ, as a sacrifice that she was she was making to Christ, and and that really that let Spurgeon go forth. I mean, you know, Josh, as you travel and as I travel in ministry, how difficult it would be, even in our travels, to go out and preach somewhere else and to know that our wives were heartbroken at home and were reluctant to let us go or were not supportive to send us off. That would be unbearable, be very difficult to minister in that setting. Spurgeon, he missed her as well, uh, but he felt the freedom ago. Uh, there's just story after story of surprising things all the way to the end of her life when as a sick widow, she plants a, a Baptist church <laughs> on her own. So, uh, well, well, she she leads the effort to plant the Baptist church. Yeah, these are amazing stories. On, on page 220 of Susie, you write the following. You, you write, in 1895, three years after the death of Charles, Susie wrote, God comforted me in my affliction, and in his wondrous pity and compassion uplifted me from the sorrow of my loss into the joyful hope of eternal reunion in the land that knows no death. She described her life's journey with Charles as, quote, two pilgrims treading this highway of life together, hand in hand, heart linked to heart, end quote. So as I, as I read that, I, I get a picture of 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 a life that was very much linked together. So it wasn't that Spurgeon was just dragging Susie along behind him, but that they were working together and they saw their ministry as something that was a together ministry. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, she, she lived really to uh, to promote his ministry. She saw herself as a part of it. Spurgeon sought her counsel. Uh, and and valued her. Sometimes when he would meet with his students, they would come over to his to his home. He uh, he started the pastors' college, and the students would come there. He would bring her out and and uh, let her answer the question, some of the questions of the students. And one one particular example is uh, they're asking him about Bible reading, and he says, "Well, my wife can help you more than I can on that. She uh, she spends more time reading the Bible than I do, uh, which is hard to imagine." But she read through the Bible every year, and then she learned how to meditate on small portions of the Scripture. But yes, to answer your question, she is with them 100%. They're in this together. Uh, they minister together. Uh, she, he, she, he edits her, her, her writing, which uh, she requests. He usually would say, this needs no editing. It stands on its own. It doesn't need my help. Uh, and she read his work. 
And that's really how Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund started. He gave her a copy, uh, first volume of lectures to my students. And so what do you think of this? And uh, she was so fascinated by that book. She said, I wish we could give a copy of this to every pastor in England. And he said, why don't you make it happen? And so in 1875, Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund began. And by the time she died, she gave away 200,000 books. Of course, many of them were Spurgeon's volumes, which uh, most pastors wanted. And pastors were very poor, many very poor pastors in the uh, British Isles at that time. And so that's that's one way she extended his his legacy and his ministry was through giving away these books. Yeah, absolutely. That was what, in many ways, she she saw herself uh, doing in ministry, especially after he passed, of course. But as we think about Susie and her effectiveness in ministry, now keep in mind she, uh, as you well know, she she falls ill and she was unable to really be. Uh, uh, in attendance at church in the last years of Spurgeon's life. So this was before the technology boom, of course. This was before Zoom and YouTube, no live stream. And yet she wasn't disconnected from ministry. Although suffering, although ill, although unable to really be uh, there in attendance, she still wanted to be engaged in ministry. So Talk to us a little bit about how she did use that book ministry to minister to pastors who were uh, in many ways poor, as you've mentioned, or did not have uh, access to good books. Because again, books for pastors, that that's the tool that, that we use. We, we're, we're reading, we're at the study, we're, we're constantly at the desk, we're, we're reading the Bible and we're, we're reading uh, church history. So she saw this as a massive benefit because she also looked at how her own husband was studying and how he was reading uh, consistently through the week in preparation for his own preaching ministry. So talk to us a little bit about about how she saw that as a massive way of reaching uh, the hearts and the pulpits and the churches all around England. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. Uh, they were married in 1856 in January. And by 1869, she essentially can never attend church again, never hear Spurgeon I mean, she a couple of times, but it's very rare for her to come back to church. The nature of her affliction is so severe. And so she writes about how precious it is that she's spending time in his study while he's working on sermons. She's reading to him, helping him uh, in his sermon study like that. He'd say, go to shelf three, you know, pick, uh, volume seven of Thomas Brooks or whatever, read paragraph four. And so she is benefiting from his ministry like that. And she does see how much, uh, how important books are to her husband. And she increasingly becomes aware of how many pastors really do not have hardly any resources. And the situation was so dire that there are pastors who had, uh, uh, they were married, they had children, they could barely afford food and, and, uh, and clothing for their family. And so there's no way they would spend money on books when their children needed food or, or medical care. It was just a struggle for them to survive even. And so some of them had, had rarely ever received a new book. Uh, they had a couple of books maybe along with their Bible. And Susie believed that the one the pastors needed ministering to they're they're men of god they they they're serving the lord jesus they should be honored they should be cared for provided for she also believed that when that happens 
the church would be better off. You know, when the pastor is strong and the pastor is well-equipped, the church will be strong. And as a result of stronger preaching in the pulpit uh, uh, by pastors who have more resources, the gospel will go further. And so she encouraged that in her writing. Uh, she thought that other churches could come alongside of these smaller churches and, and uh, poor pastors and help them. In some cases, uh, churches were not doing all that they could do to support their pastor. And so she encouraged that. But in many cases, they were doing all that they could do. And uh, and so that uh, book fund became a way to not only ex- extend her, it wasn't to extend Spurgeon's ministry for the sake of extending his ministry. His books uh, and the books that she recommended were were life. They were solid doctrinally. They were uh, they were encouraging Christ centered works that would change the heart of the pastor and, and his people and by extension others. And then later during the downgrade controversy, when when so many in the Baptist Union are are falling to liberalism and whatnot, those books became one of the uh, sources of building a, a dam. Uh, and keeping those pastors secure and protected and helped and equipped so that they could skillfully deal with the errors that were that were falling like raindrops <laughs> from the sky. And so she believed it was her book ministry that the Lord used to help sure up pastors uh, in the midst of lots of temptations to depart from the old faith. Uh, talk to us just a moment about Susie and how she was very much uh, engaged with, you know, the discipleship of their children. So here you have a mom, here you have a wife, and you have a very busy, successful husband who is preaching, he's discipling, he's training, he's writing, and yet she refused to overlook the care of of their children. And of course, Spurgeon, he, he was engaged as well. We can read story after story of that as well. But talk to us about how she approached and took seriously the discipleship of their yeah. children. Uh, well, Spurgeon established in their home from the very beginning family worship. So, and she, she, she writes that wherever they were, if they were in a cabin or a palatial hotel, uh, wherever they were, they had family worship when they were together. Now, of course, we know Spurgeon is gone many nights so frequently. And so she then is leading family worship. And when the uh, and training up the children, and when they get older, they also would participate in the leading of family worship all, uh, as well. But an, sort of an interesting testimony from the children back to her is that neither of the boys were converted directly under Spurgeon's preaching. Of course, his influence and her influence large in their conversion, but both were converted under the ministries of other people. But both of them testified not only to the value of their father, but they, they both testified to their mother as probably being the single most important influence on them coming into Christ. Thomas Spurgeon uh, writes a lot about that in, in his work. So she is reading the scripture to them. She is praying with them. And then Susie played the piano. And so she would take Ira Sankey's hymns, for example, one of his hymn books, um, Moody's music director, and and uh, she would sing with them. But when it came to a section in a hymn, for example, that declared one's personal faith in Christ as as a living reality, I'm trying to I can't remember the, the name of the hymn at the moment, 
she wouldn't let them sing that line in the hymn <laughs> prior to their conversion. She said, I pray that you'll be able to sing this one day and it's true of you. And Thomas Spurgeon said that that just weighed on his heart. He wanted it to be true of him. And the Lord used even that to bring him to faith. And he was so happy when he could sing the full hymn <laughs> and declare his own profession of faith in the Lord. When they were away at school, which many uh, uh, young people were during that period of time, they would be away at boarding school and various schools. She wrote to them. And one particular letter that comes to mind is that she's proud of their accomplishments. She said, but the one thing that concerns me most is your holiness. Are you pursuing holiness in the fear of God? And so she would write letters like that to them as well, even when they're older, to encourage them to pursue holiness. Yeah, that's really encouraging. But you've written another book, Ray, and it's titled Yours Till Heaven, The Untold Love Story of of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. So tell us a little bit about this latest book and uh, what prompted you again to write that book and then where it can be purchased. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Uh, well, as, as I mentioned, before I wrote Susie, I had in my mind I wanted to write a book on their marriage. It was striking to me when I was doing research that no one had ever done that. Even though there, there was just the one little biography of Susanna Spurgeon, no one had written uh, about their marriage to any depth. I mean, there's an article here and there. And so that's one thing as an author you, you like to find. There's a great subject that no one's covered. <laughs> and uh, step into that void. And not only to write a book for the sake of writing a book, but being able to write a book about a godly couple, a godly marriage. And it'd be a bit different from some even of our heroes in the past who, who whose marriages were not always exemplary. And in this marriage, what I found was sweetness, kindness. Uh, I found beautiful love letters. Uh, expressions that, uh, as, I've, as, oft, as I've often said, that uh, Spurgeon would be so overflowing with his romantic expressions that would make a Victorian blush. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he wrote of daydreaming of Susie, uh, thinking of her through the night. And, uh, and he would write to her, especially later in life when he is sick, so sick and he's away from home, for sometimes months at a time, three months at a time in southern France, where the doctor had sent him to find some relief for his various afflictions over and over and over in his letters. And by the way, Josh, I know you do this, too. It's not just a text or an email. You write a personal letter to your wife every single day when you're away from home. And I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but Spurgeon did that every day, every day. He wrote a letter to his wife. and. When he physically couldn't move his hands, which was the case at times due to gout and his other problems, he would dictate a letter through his secretary, Joseph Harold, and he would send the uh, the letter to uh, to Susie as well. So in those letters, over and over, he would say, "There's one thing missing," and he's at the he's on the French Riviera, the most one of the most beautiful places on the earth. I had the opportunity to go to Montan, where Spurgeon was, and I understood it when I saw how stunningly beautiful it was. He said, this place is beautiful, wonderful experiences I'm having. One thing missing, you. <laughs> he, he missed his wife when he was away from her. and He longed to be back in her arms at home. 
And so the more I uh, unpacked this, uh, this story, the more convicted I became. Uh, you know, Ray, you're a sorry husband. Come on, man. <laughs> You've got to do better. Now, I was convicted of my own failures, uh, but also encouraged that, you know, Spurgeon is an intimidating figure, right? And I think if any of us set out to become Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to become Spurgeon. We're going to be frustrated day one, day the first hour of day one. We'll be frustrated. Our goal is not to be Charles Spurgeon. Our goal is to learn from our heroes and uh, be encouraged by their example. And so, you know, when I read their love story, I want to be a, a God. I want to be a better husband. I want to love my wife better and communicate that to, to her. So that just set me on fire, got me excited. And uh, I was able to, Moody was kind enough to, hey, let's do another book. Susie did, has done really well. It's in its fourth printing now and uh, being translated in various languages. So that helped. If Susie had flopped, then maybe there's, this one doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ray, as you, as you have had the privilege to read these various letters and, of course, uh, dive into the ministry of Susie and, and her book ministry and, and various other ways that she stood alongside her husband, as we think about the downgrade controversy, which was a massive burden upon her husband, certainly it would have been upon her as well. Is there anything that you saw in your research as far as being unique about how Susie herself approached the downgrade? Is there anything that, that you could bring to the table uh, for us to help sort of get a peek behind the curtain to see how she saw this controversy, how she saw it impacting her husband, or maybe how she uh, responded to this controversy personally? Yeah, yeah. Unflinching support. Uh, uh, there was no doubts in her mind that he was doing the right thing. He was doing it in the right way, and uh, and she was supporting that through her through comforting him, encouraging him. In one particular uh, situation, uh, he gets a letter. Uh, she gets the letter. He's in southern France. Someone's going to cut off financial support to his ministry as a result of this. Uh, she uh, writes him. And uh, and she says, in essence, she says, when I, uh, I got the letter, I prayed and I laughed. And why did she laugh? She said, I laughed because I know that uh, no one can pluck us from the Father's hand. No one can hurt us. And we're in God's hands. And, and so Spurgeon had the comfort of knowing that he's got a wife at home that's not unraveling in the heat of the battle and that is not uh, anxious about these things. She's praying for him and all the rest. And so, but she's also uh, heavily burdened as well because Spurgeon is affected by this. There's there's really two uh, bookends in Spurgeon's life: one at the beginning, one at the end, that changed him. Not not spiritually, not his love for the Lord or anything, but it affected him emotionally and psychologically. The first one was the music hall disaster when uh, seven or eight people were trampled to death uh, in the crowds. He never got over that, ever. The second one is the downgrade controversy in the late 1880s that, that uh, really continued until his death in 1892, but the height of the controversy in the late 1880s, 87, 89, that uh, he's brokenhearted. And Susie says, in essence, that even on his deathbed, he is still weeping over some of his own men that he had trained 
how they had abandoned and departed from the old faith. And so she believed that controversy was the sort of the human cause of his death at 57. I mean, he had lots of problems. His, his, he's overweight due to his other health issues, his kidney problems, gout, overworked. But she believed that was the uh, that was the domino that fell that ultimately broke Spurgeon and took him to his grave. I want to personally thank you for writing these two books. I want to commend them to those of you that might be listening to this podcast. It's not just for women, and it's certainly not just for uh, a pastor's wife, but it would be really good for the whole church to read, something good for the church library. So I, I commend them to you. Uh, Ray, as we part uh, today, I want you to just basically encourage people by giving them a parting uh, encouragement to dive into reading uh, individuals and biographies of church history. So how would you encourage those that might be listening today that perhaps haven't really taken the time necessary to read about the important figures of church history? Yeah, I, I would encourage that. And one of the things that happens when you read a good biography is that, uh, one, you're encouraged by the highs and the lows of a, of a godly person's lives, how they handle success and how they handle suffering, such as the case with the Spurgeons. Perhaps we learn more from Spurgeon's sufferings and his faith in Christ than we do from his successes either. You learn a lot of theology by reading biography as well, how uh, what a person believed, but also how they fleshed that out in their ministry and in their marriage and every aspect of life. And I tell you, I tell folks all the time, read the Bible, uh, and read church history, read biography. And if you, uh, if you can't read anything else, just read those three things. Brother, thank you for joining us for this edition of the G3 Podcast. Well, thank you, Josh. Blessings to you, brother. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the G3 Podcast. As we look forward through 2021, remember the new dates for G3, as we will not be having the G3 National Conference in January any longer. We made that transition last year. We will be having our National Conference in Atlanta September 30th through October the 2nd. Again, you can find out information at our website, g3men.org. We will also be having a pre-conference on the 29th. Uh, typically with our national conference on that Wednesday, we will have a pre-conference. We'll be releasing more information about that. There's also hotel blocks that we've recently published. If you scroll to the bottom of the registration page, you will see all of those different hotel blocks. You will see the the specific hotel that is the host ho hotel, which is connected to the actual convention center there. Uh, again, a wonderful opportunity for families, fall weather, Atlanta, Georgia, right next to Centennial Park, as we're going to be at a new location for the conference. It's the Georgia World Congress Center. And if you look right across the street from, from our uh, current venue where we're going to be this fall, you will see Centennial Park, opportunities for the family to enjoy, uh, great weather, opportunities for you to engage with your family in various activities. There's various different restaurants and amenities that surround the park. So we look forward to seeing you there with us this fall as we come together for a wonderful time of encouragement and Christian fellowship as we will be engaged in studying and learning the doctrine of Christ. 
May God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week on the G3 Podcast.